Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. All the issues from last week are still exploding, reverberating, and new issues have come up like a volcano erupting, like the BBC, Prince Harry, and Princess Diana. But there are many other issues too, all over the world, and we'll be covering them here on the mother of all talk shows, the Open University of the Airwaves. Fasten your seatbelts. It's the mother of all talk shows. Last week's show took place when the blood was running through the streets of Gaza. The airplanes were firing their missiles, their rockets, dropping their bunker, busting bombs, bringing down tower blocks, hitting schools, killing women, killing children in Gaza. Tonight they're not, but that doesn't mean the killing has stopped. The people in Gaza are still being killed, but they're being killed quietly again by hunger, by malnutrition, by dirty water, by no electricity supply that can be relied upon. Now thousands of them by homelessness, sleeping under the sky because their homes are amongst the thousands that have been leveled. This compounding all of the houses that were leveled before, all of the killings that there were before. And of course, no sooner had the ceasefire been agreed the security forces of the state of Israel were on the Temple Mount around Al-Aqsa firing guns again in the third holiest of places for the two billion Muslims around the world. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> it was the attack on the Al-Aqsa which caused this latest war on Gaza to erupt in the first place. But here's the thing. Israel lost this war. They killed hundreds of people, half of them women and children. They destroyed all these houses and other public buildings, but they lost the war. Their defenses could not cope with the fireworks being fired from ragged-assed people in sandals inside the barbed wire of Gaza and serious military figures, one of whom I'm going to be talking with in a minute, 
I'm now questioning what would have happened if Hezbollah had been firing rockets from Lebanon, if the Iraqi resistance had been firing from Baghdad, if Iran had been firing from Iran, the military balance of power has decisively shifted as a result of this most futile of Israel's border wars. But a bigger issue arises. Israel lost the publicity war. A larger number of people in a larger number of countries found themselves sometimes for the first time deploring what Netanyahu was doing, cursing what Netanyahu was doing and understanding perhaps for the first time why Netanyahu was doing it. Now, uh, Gadi Francis is a journalist and war correspondent uh, and a very brave one and a very eminent one. Uh, she is currently based in Beirut, but in 2013, she went to Gaza and made two documentaries, brilliant, powerful documentaries about the conflict in the Arabic language. She stayed six days in tunnels in Gaza, went to Gaza through Egypt. She also wrote a book, again in Arabic, on Syria, called My Pen and Pain. 100 Days in Syria. It's by Saki Books, 2012, uh, and it's uh, datelined Beirut. Ghadi joins us now, I hope, journalist and war correspondent. Ghadi, can you hear me well? I can hear you quite clearly. I'd just like to uh, correct one thing that, uh, that has been said. I didn't spend the six days in the tunnels. I actually passed through the tunnels. I spent the six days in besieged Gaza, in uh, Jabalia. Well, I, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that because six days in the tunnels would have been most uncomfortable, <laughs> but six days exactly. in Jabalia would not be that much better. Jabalia and, and all other different parts of uh, Gaza spent with journalists and people trying to really understand because I come from a generation that was brought up. Uh, I mean, I'm 32 years old now. I remember it was like my second or third uh, year in college when on New Year's Eve, we were in front of the Esqua protesting for children of Gaza. We weren't partying, we weren't... Re and I would never forget that because I had to give up my New Year's Eve celebrations because in my conscience, like, there are children being slaughtered in 2008, that is. So for us, for this same person to go five years later uh, and actually reach uh, Gaza, it was something on so many levels, like I'm actually in Palestine. It's the first time I see the Palestinian flag inside Palestine without having to deal with the occupiers. Um, I was really disappointed because, you know, we have all these romantic ideas uh, and then you, you, you get to understand the reality more. Um, but I discovered many things. It was the time of truce when I, when I actually went to Gaza and I was angry because I did not hear any, any uh, clashes. And I told my friends, I want to go to Beit Lahia. I want to go to the places where there is a border, where I can see an Israeli. And then there, there were like strawberry 
farmers, two boys, and they're telling me their daily clashes when they're in their land, how they come and the, the Israeli occupiers from the other side start uh, uh, scuffles with them and how this was the, their daily life. But I couldn't really, there was nothing there and there was actually a police guarding the truce. And this really, really led to a great disappointment for me. Um, because, you know, like, I don't drink Starbucks. I don't go to H&M. I don't, I don't do any of these things because I am a pro-Palestine person. So when I go there and you, you meet with, like, there's nothing happening right now. But what happened this past week taught me the biggest lesson of my life is that we cannot anticipate what the resistance is doing. We cannot really anticipate what is the best for what. While I was really being a kid about it and saying, why isn't there any war? Why are you eating Israeli cheese? Why do you have Israeli lines? Why do you use the shaker? Just like a kid. While actually they were inventing and, uh, and procuring a strength that could do all the things all the change that Gaza did last week. I know you're going to tell me a lot of people died. This is our pain. But whatever the status quo is, they are always killing us. They're always killing us. You don't hear about it. But every day, a child dies. A woman is shot at a, at a checkpoint. Uh, uh, in Lebanon, in, uh, inside Palestine, inside the occupied lands, and in Gaza, Every day we're dying, every day this has been the story of our lives for 72 years. So, but now the new narrative is that they cannot withstand uh, uh, the fear of what we could do if we are all fighting together. If they, uh, you can, I, read, I really read the Israeli uh, press and the, the narratives that they're saying, and they say, what if Hezbollah did the same? What if Syria enters? What if the Jordanians at the borders do that? What if it's all together? And actually, what happened during the past week tells me that there is hope that one way or another we're going to get there. Well, uh, the, the political, military, and public relations uh, victory, without doubt, belongs to the, uh, to the Arab side. The Israelis can pretend otherwise, as Miko Pellet just told us. From Jerusalem, they are pretending otherwise, but uh, in their heads and their hearts, they know uh, that they had less support at the end of the week than they had at the beginning of it, uh, that the uh, Iron Dome did not work uh, and to the extent that Tel Aviv was able to be hit, the airport was able to be hit, and the soldiers were not able to enter uh, Gaza for fear of uh, a face-to-face -face fight on the ground uh, with the Palestinians. All these things cannot be denied. Neither can it be uh, denied that if other parties had joined in, you mentioned Lebanon and Syria, uh, but also Iraq, which I think may have been uh, a most decisive uh, possibility uh, that the uh, resistance movements in Iraq were threatening to begin firing missiles which they uh, claimed could easily reach uh, Israel. These, these are all big changes from what existed uh, just a week uh, ago. But 
according to Miko Pellet, Netanyahu is much more popular this weekend than he was before all this began. He will be able to stay in power. He may not even have to go for another election. He will not be sent to jail on the corruption indictments. So the scene is set for another war and possibly soon, isn't it? You know, I don't like to speculate about the things that I really don't know about. I don't know if there's going to be another war, but I can tell you about Netanyahu, why this is happening, why he's not going to have another uh, election. My analysis of that is that because they are now asking, the Israelis are asking themselves bigger existential uh, questions. They don't have the luxury to do that anymore, from my point of view. Uh, when you spend, you are actually a settler, it's not your land, and you spend the last week in underground and afraid, and your whole existence is under question, your airports are closed, your, your airports, they're not their airports, they are occupied Palestine airports. But everything, your whole existence is under question. So as a bunch of settlers, their priorities now are not the same. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, it's not because Netanyahu is popular, it's because he, he, might, he might be the last uh, PM. By, I, I cannot really understand how they think in their internal politics, but I don't think it has made him more popular. I think it has made it more clear that they don't have the choice to do internal politics uh, uh, for fifth election or to form a different... When you are... It's, it's typical biology. I mean, when you are in a house and the house is on fire, and you don't know if it's going to stay, you don't really do the refurnishing, you know? You just try to put out the fire. So now the whole uh, uh, existence is, uh, is under question. As, well, uh, uh, let, uh, me, let me ask you about another existential question. Yeah. Uh, and I speak as someone who, who was living in your city before you were born. Uh, do the Arabs? We all know this, and do... we love you for that. Actually, you have <laughs> a very you. big fan base in Lebanon, Mr. Galloway. Thank you so much. Do the Arabs still exist? You know, I've never been. I've never uh, identified myself as an Arab. I believe I have a different thought, so I cannot really relate to the idea. Um, I've always, we have always had this ideology of believing in Mesopotamia and the Levantine. I don't think that Syria, and you mentioned Iraq, I don't think that Syria, Palestine, Iraq, Lebanon, Jordan, uh, this part has the same history or geopolitical uh, uh, nature like the Arab Gulf uh, or the, uh, the, the North Africa region. Because when you say Arab, it's from Mauritania till uh, Kuwait and, uh, and uh, UAE and all these 22 uh, countries. I don't think we should. I don't think it's fair to say that the the whole thing. Um, but but what Palestine has proven last week is that yes, there are Arabs. There are there is a sentiment, a general Arab sentiment, and Islamic sentiment. But above all, a global humanitarian sentiment. Uh, we saw yesterday in London. We these this the the world showed Palestine a shape of solidarity. That really, for me, I think it's higher because it's like for the first time we see a Congress woman speaking about this, and a, a, an American president talking about it, and and all this shape of solidarity. But uh, I don't speak as an Arab. I believe that I am 
I have a different identity as a Lebanese. Yeah, uh, I understand that. Um, I suppose my point is this. Uh, when I lived in your city before you were born, uh, yeah. all of the Arabs supported Palestine and nobody in the West did. Prom yeah. I promise you that. I could show you my scars. Uh, now it seems to have reversed uh, that all over yeah. the Western countries, there are millions of people on the march for Palestine, but the Arab world is quiet. Obviously, Lebanon is uh, an example, uh, 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 is an exception beyond uh, description. Also Syria and Iraq. Syria and Iraq also. Yemen also. And, and Yemen, exactly. Uh, so, but um, in the other Arab countries, and particularly those that have recently you, signed up to these uh, Abraham Accords. In, well, in Morocco used to be one of the biggest armies for Palestine amongst the public. How has that changed? Well, uh, I think there has been uh, a, a, a different, a, a question. And I take the UAE, for example, like they said, no, don't enter the Aqsa, but okay, let's push for ceasefire. I think these countries are still at the very beginning of that, uh, that normalization deal. And even the American president who set the Abraham Accords is not there now. And um, I, I think it's not that these deals also were affected. The nature of these deals were affected by the big uh, Palestinian uprising. Um, but uh, because also this is the answer, because there is this point of view towards the big historic struggle, because this is what the choice was. We cannot find it surprising that there wasn't any kind in the in the streets. Also, these uh, countries, these Arab countries that you speak of, all probably most of the Arab countries, they don't really have uh, that shape of political activism. We never see political parties protesting or riots, or we've never seen it on any uh, occasion. And even in the beginning of your question, even when you were living in, in my city long before I was born, um, when you say the Arabs were with Palestine, I don't think they were ever with Palestine because if they really were with Palestine, the occupation would have ended a long time ago. They were Very good answer. Very, very good answer. And unfortunately, we're now out of time. But it's been a real pleasure uh, talking Thank with you. you. Thank you for joining us on the Mother of All talk shows. I hope you'll come back. Again, it would be wonderful to see you. Kenny is in London. Let's hear from him. Go ahead, Kenny. Hi, George. I've got a, a document in front of me about how Israel obtained its land. And a lot of people say it was stolen, but do you mind if I just read some of it out just now? Uh, briefly, yeah. I mean, not a big but, tract. Right, okay. It says, at the end of World War One, some of the Palestinian land was owned by Abstin absentee landlords who lived in Cairo, Damascus, and Beirut. Around 80% of Palestinian Arabs were debt-ridden uh, peasants and semi-nomads. Analysis of land purchases from 1880 to 1984 showed that 73% of Jewish plots were purchases from la uh, large landowners, not poor fellahin. And that's from the Peel Commission in 1937. And uh, it goes on, it says, 
The Arab charge that Jews had obtained too much, a proportion of good land cannot be maintained. Much of the land now carrying orange groves was sand dunes or swamp and uncultivated when purchased. How long does this racist rant go on, Kenny? Uh, well... No, I'm, I'm just wondering... Well, I mean, you might as well call the Palestinians... Uh, Sand uh, jockeys, uh, the debt-ridden peasants. I was almost well, scratching myself at the uh, at the image that you were portraying. That Palestine was a swamp, uh, and there were no oranges growing. Have you any idea just how wrong you are? Well, I'm. I didn't come. I'm not the author of the article, well, George. Well, but well, let me let me uh, let me guide you to some. Uh, rather more wholesome and accurate documents. Right. Palestine was a highly developed Arab country. Who sold land to whom is, of course, not a matter for thee or me. But the one thing we'll need to agree on is that God is not an estate agent. And God didn't grant land to anybody because God doesn't deal in real estate. The state of Israel was formed at a point in which a very clear minority of the population were Jewish. The Balfour Declaration was made promising a national home for the Jewish people, although the second half of the Balfour Declaration actually requires a bit more attention paid to it. Because it said that nothing shall be done that will prejudice the civil or religious rights of the people already living there. Which, of course, is a promise not kept. But when the Balfour Declaration was made, less than 10% of the population of Palestine was Jewish. Uh, but now we have a situation where the entirety of Palestine from the river to the sea, is either called Israel, which calls itself the Jewish state, or occupied by Israel illegally and by military force. So I prefer to deal with today and tomorrow rather than uh, 100 years ago, but I'm well equipped uh, to deal with anything you've got to say about a hundred years ago. Kenny, go on. Well, it depends on what you think the appropriate time frame is because the anyone Jews... Anyone you like. Anyone you okay. like. As long as you're not going to try the old gods and estate agent one. Because that's, no, no, that's no, 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 too laughable. No, no. That's too laughable. I'm not, I'm not going to say that at all, but what I think uh, the Jews were in Israel as far back as 3,000 years ago. So you are giving me, so you, no, you, you are giving me the gods and the state agent. No, I'm just uh, giving you a larger Do you know who was here, you. Kenny? Do you know who was here 3,000 years ago? Do you, do you know that the Romans occupied us for 400 years? Well less than 3,000 years ago. But see if an Italian turns up at my house and says, that's my house, because I lived here 2,000 years ago. Well, you'll get a flea in his ear, Kenny, and I think you'd give him one too if he came to your door, wouldn't you? Yes, of course, but also goes on with the UN estimates 
the, the property losses by Jews in Arab countries was 10 times now, that. That's a completely different, but that's a completely <clears throat> different question. That's, that is there. I'm ready to debate it with you any time. Mm -hmm. But you're talking about the Palestinians who once had a country and now do not. Who once had a house but now do not. Who once had an orange grove and I promise you it was not a swamp. But now do not. Who are living but in exile, who are living as refugees, who are living as internally displaced people, who are living in Gaza, in an open-air prison camp. Can we deal with them? Can we deal with them in this de debate? Yes, of course. I'm just, you know, I'm just reading part of the... I know you're just reading. You've more, got a script. Than, no, I know you've got more. a script. But for the interest it's of not, the viewer, well, look, stop talking about what happened in Morocco to Jewish people in Morocco. You phoned up to talk about Palestine. You said the Palestinians were debt-ridden uh, peasants uh, and that none of them owned land. It was all owned by absentee landlords. You said that their land yes. was a swamp. You said they had no orange groves. All of that is a racist trope. Right, okay, well, I'm, like I said, I'm not the author of the article. No, but, but you're on my, here, you're on here, you're on here reading it out. Yeah, because I think it's interesting. I wanted to put it to you to see what your point of view well, on I'm that was. I've given you my point of view, but much more. more listen, don't listen to me, Kenny. Never listen to me. Don't believe a word I said. Read Israeli historians. Read Gideon Levy, the greatest living Israeli who was on here last week. Read Professor Avi Schleim. Read the finest Jewish Israeli academics. Be gone with you and your debt ridden peasantry tropes. TP is in Portugal. Wish I was. TP, go, go ahead. Can you hear me, Mr. Galloway? Yes, very clearly. I, I quite like your, your, true, your truism to the last caller, by the way. Uh, my, my point is, um, quite simply, that, of course, it's Palestine and uh, the Israeli crime minister. I say crime minister because that's what he is, uh, Netanyahu. He wheels out his epithets every time he attacks uh, Gaza and the boycott from sea and such. But I really do think, Mr. Galloway, that the PLO are in the background I don't think they're up to the job. I don't know whether Hamas is up to the job either, but I think there is a case to, you know, Palestine to be integrated with Arab and the 12 tribes of Israel. God wasn't, I'm a Catholic, and God wasn't a real estate agent, Mr. Galloway. I, that made me laugh out loud, actually, and I liked it. It was Palestine. We don't know who lived there. We, the earliest recollection we have, uh, maybe the, the wandering Romans who got everywhere. Who knows? I don't care. But it's Palestine. It's not Israel, and I'm ambiguous on the state of Israel for what it is, a combination of France and Britain's uh, backdoor tactics, let's cut it up in the Middle East. There's also the question of Saudi Arabia. There's also the question of Yemen. Where are they uh, with money to rebuild Gaza to, to, to go to the United Nations, which is like a leak in chocolate teapot. They can't make a decision. <laughs> Meanwhile, kids in the Gaza Strip are dying. 
Israelis at the end, they burst into a house of prayer, which is the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which was ridiculous, a great uh, ploy by the, by the Prime Minister Netanyahu, Netanyahu again. Now we're in a situation again where they drag themselves back. I don't think the PLO are helping that much. I don't think their backers are helping that much because they, they're all abrogating any duty. Well, they don't have any is- backers. Uh, let me disabuse you of that. Uh, the uh, PLO is uh, uh, completely marginalized in this picture. Uh, the uh, Palestine National Authority in Ramallah is virtually powerless. It is yes. penniless. It has long outstayed its mandate. It's uh-huh. been in power for 15 years without a renewed electoral mandate. The Gaza uh-huh. Strip is controlled by the Islamist uh, forces uh, who won the election there but were then blockaded and boycotted. And even Tony Blair, our fellow Roman Catholic, uh, <laughs> said was a very big mistake. Mr. Blair admitted that he had made the very big mistake of reacting to the Hamas election victory in Gaza by... Uh, boycott and uh, ostracism and so on. Uh, So uh, that's all there is. Uh, There's only uh, a a small nation of people with no Arab Uh backers, with no money, with no power, Uh with not a single tank, never mind an F-16 with a missile that can be uh, hurled anywhere at the touch of a button from very far away, uh-huh. not a drone, uh, not a, a heavy gun, nothing. So this is I mean, uh, David, this and, David and Goliath. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think shows like yours are vital because these questions need to be aired in the real press, not the Murdoch nonsense. Thank you very much okay. indeed uh, for that call from Portugal. Wasn't the accent I was expecting, but it was a very nice uh, call. Now, question time. Which country came into existence in this week in 1949? Yo, Mikey, what's happening? Joey! The usual? Sure. You looking fresh, man. You get a new haircut? Nah, brother. I just got that, you know, scholarship from the College of Knowledge. Oh, you got into the University of the Airwaves? Sure did, brother. I got knowledge coming out of my ears. GG, man. He knows what's up. I knew there was something new about you. Yo, reckon he take me? Everyone is welcome, brother. Even from Jersey. (laughs) The answer is, of course, West Germany. A country which no longer exists. Making a point I frequently make that countries exist until they no longer exist. Some of my favorite countries in the world no longer exist. The USSR no longer exists. West Germany no longer exists. East Germany no longer exists. Yugoslavia no longer exists. Czechoslovakia no longer exists. Just think about that. Now, the thinking man and woman's president of the United States, or at least Secretary of State, is the great Chris Hedges, journalist, writer, and 
activist who joins me now. Uh, the proximate reason, Chris, uh, was to reflect on the anniversary of the Watergate break-in. I'm not going to ask you uh, who went through the window and how they got the door open and that kind of thing. I wanted to focus on, on two things about the Watergate that seemed to me of lasting significance, or rather the corollary. We only know about the Watergate, and Nixon only resigned uh, because the United States at that time had a media, had a newspaper industry, including your old manor, uh, in the print side of things, but also, eventually, even on broadcast media, they refused to let the Watergate crime and the conspiracy to cover it up, they refused to let it off the hook. We had a Woodward and a Bernstein. Uh, later, we, we had a Chris Hedges, but we don't have any of them now. Is that a fair comment? Uh, yeah, I mean, they're probably still out there, but this, as you're right, the media, the, the especially investigative journalism is very anemic. Although the Watergate story started out as a police story, it was a, it was a burglary, uh, and Han Woodward and Bernstein were very low-level reporters, uh, but of course they, uh, you know, ran with it. Uh, and uh, the, the press had a kind of vigor and a kind of power. Uh, I would add this caveat, uh, George, and that is that that, that kind of activity and worse, uh, break-ins even to the point of political assassinations carried out by the FBI against uh, the Black Panther leader, uh, Fred Hampton and, and Mark Clark in Chicago, uh, this stuff, the kind of stuff that the break-in, and it was, a, it was a wiretap. They had actually got caught the second time they were breaking in because they had broken in in May to put two wiretaps on the phone. One of them was faulty and they'd gone back in to correct it. That's when they got caught. Um, but uh, that kind of activity, and worse, frankly, uh, had been carried out for over a decade against uh, anti-war dissidents, left-wing groups, the Socialist Workers' Party, uh, and the press didn't react at all. And it didn't. the reason it reacted in Watergate is because uh, Nixon and those around him overstepped and went after another center of power. Uh, and uh, I think we do have to be clear that uh, these tactics and much worse uh, had long been visited, especially on the anti-war left, and the press had done frighteningly little. Here's my second point then, that it was worth doing from Nixon's point of view, because there was an alternative uh, party and program and leadership that was worth bugging, worth undermining. But there isn't now, is there? You couldn't tell the difference uh, between your normal Republican. I mean, if you, if you showed me Nancy Pelosi's speeches uh, without me knowing she made them, and showed me the uh, Republican congressional leader, Schumer, is it? it? It would be impossible to tell the difference between these two. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, at least, there were two parties. It's my thesis that there now is only one party in the United States. That's right. And and the last real anti-war candidate progressive was McGovern, uh, which is why when he got the nomination 
and it was through a kind of insurgency within the party, the Democratic Party elite allied with the Republican Party elite under Nixon to crush him, uh, which they did quite successfully. And after the election, it came out that there were all sorts of, again, dirty tricks that were used, uh, embraced by uh, the hierarchies of both parties. Uh, and that uh, the Democratic Party created a system that's where superdelegates come in and everything else so that they would never have another McGovern again. I knew McGovern not well, but I knew him. And uh, he was a man of deep integrity uh, and a highly decorated uh, bomber pilot in uh, World War II. He himself, uh, he, he came out of that military experience and uh, understood the danger of what Eisenhower called the military industrial complex. So uh, yes, he was, he was the last. We had Henry Wallace, who was destroyed in 48. He had been Roosevelt's vice president, the la anti-war candidate. The next one we had of any significance, certainly in terms of a Democratic nominee, was McGovern. And then, uh, that's right, we began this kind of rolling corporate coup d'etat. Uh, and so it's just a, a one-party you know, a, a kind of corporate duopoly is the best way. Ralph. Yeah, Ralph yeah. I mean, they, they killed Kennedy, they destroyed McGovern, uh, and then it was basically business as usual for the business. Uh, whoever got the gig, who, you know, Bill Clinton, George Bush, uh, George Bush uh, and, uh, and, and Barack Obama, they followed the they followed ex essentially the same policies, and not least in the international field, which is what I'd like your view on if you would kindly give it me. Um, we now have a, a situation where Donald Trump seemed to be uh, the most effusive supporter of Israel uh, in the White House, but Joe Biden is following exactly the same policies. He's just signed over almost $800 million worth of new weapons on top of uh, the weapons that he had already signed over and the U.S. had already given. On top of the money, uh, the daily subvention given by the U.S. Uh, to Israel, almost whatever they do, whatever crime they commit, they can still count on the um, U.S. support, whoever is in power. Yeah, I mean, the rhetoric is a little different, but that's all that's different. Uh, nobody's moving the embassy uh, back to Tel Aviv from Jerusalem, which is in violation of international law. We forget that Schumer supported uh, Trump's uh, moving of the embassy, and Trump didn't actually move the embassy. Uh, the decision to move the embassy was almost unanimously passed by Congress during the Clinton administration, uh, and then it, you had six-month waivers, so the president could sign a waiver to delay the moving of the embassy because it wasn't a propitious time, and all Trump did was not sign the waiver. So, uh, yes, there's completely bipartisan support. Uh, in fact, what opposition there was within the American political establishment to uh, the overreach of Israel, actually, if you go back to the 50s and 60s, came from the Republican yep. Party, not the Democratic Party. But now uh, they're all in lockstep with this, you know, crypto fascist apartheid regime that has, you know, led by Bibi Netanyahu that has destroyed Israel. I, I find many, I used to live in Israel. I mean, I find many parallels between what's happened in Israel and what's happened 
in the United States, including the, you know, the grotesque social inequality, the assault on civil liberties, and not just against Palestinians, but against uh, Israeli human rights groups and Israeli journalists. The country has become very, very ugly in the same way that I think the United States has. Yes, uh, I also uh, frequently lived in Israel, in Tel Aviv, in Shankin Street, near, I used to take my coffee in, in Dizengoff Square, and I was surrounded by, by, by peace and justice campaigners. There were real journalists uh, uncovering scandals, and there were people ready to demonstrate uh, against crimes at the drop of a hat. Significant numbers of such people. So one or two of them were even in the Knesset. Uh, Shulamit Aloni was a friend of mine. She even made minister at one uh, stage. But that's all gone now, uh, just like McGovern and Kennedy are, are gone. Now, uh, 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 Miko Pellet tells me this evening that while the rest of the world can see uh, that the last week's efforts by Netanyahu were disastrous on the military, political, public relations level. In Israel, they're wildly popular. If he does get an election uh, next week, he'll win it. Right. I mean, and look who's contesting the election or contesting the leadership. It's the far right, the ultra right, and the ultra, ultra right. I mean, I don't know how else to describe these people. Uh, that That has become the the kind of political coloring uh, that has seized power, moved to the center of power in ways that were unthinkable when I lived in Jerusalem. I mean, these are the inheritors of the old uh, Kahak, uh, Kahana party. I mean, overt Avidor Lieberman, all these kind of people, overt racists uh, calling for uh, some of these minority parties, calling for the complete expulsion of all Palestinians, not just in the occupied territories, but within Israel itself. So. Uh, you know, the, the, the deformities that have taken place in Israel for many of the same reasons, I think parallel the kind of deformities that we've seen in the United States. And this is why Biden is such a dangerous figure, because uh, what he's done is uh, it's this kind of utopian nostalgia, you know, like Franz von Papen in 1932 thought that they could erase the Nazis by, you know, going back to the conservative past. Uh, well, that's exactly what Biden and the Democratic Party leadership and a significant part of the old Republican Party establishment are attempting to do, but it won't work. Uh, and and uh, we have midterms coming up and all projections show that the Democrats will lose their majority in the House. Uh, Trump remains ascendant because all of the structural issues that uh, created a figure like Trump uh, have not only not gone away, but gotten worse. That's another show. But the all of the relief efforts that have been passed by the Biden administration, when you look at them, are going to corporations, are going to state governments. They're not actually going to, to the people who need it. Some things changed, though. Uh, Bernie Sanders, whom we thought had gone to sleep for the duration, did get back on his feet and tried to delay the, the military largesse uh, that Biden wants to send to Netanyahu. And uh, AOC, uh, often maligned, including by me, uh, actually described Israel as an apartheid state, uh, which would get you expelled from the British Labour Party were you to say uh, such a thing. Uh, th these were welcome uh, developments, weren't they? 
Yes, although, you know, we have to be clear that within the Democratic Party establishment, neither AOC or Bernie Sanders have any real power. Uh, but the fact that members of Congress are willing to even speak this truth is significant because uh, even a couple years ago, uh, when they had this, uh, the Senate voted 100 uh, percent, I think I think it was 2014 when Israel was bombing Gaza for 51 days, killing over 2,000, 2,200 Palestinians, including 551 children. Uh, the Senate passed a resolution uh, w which even Bernie voted for uh, call, defending Israel's or, or, or justifying Israel's right to, quote unquote, defend itself. So. Yes, these cracks have appeared, but they've appeared because the Democratic base is just not buying it and the American public isn't buying it anymore. So uh, Biden's kind of lockstep with uh, Zionism is actually a kind of fossil. It, it doesn't it, 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 it within the power elite, it may have a certain amount of uh, cachet. But uh, even within the Democratic Party, uh, people have, are, I think, finally woken up to the reality of what Israel is. Now, finally, and I'm grateful for your time. Uh, 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 at the time, I considered Richard Nixon to be almost demonic. Uh, I, 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 I really saw him as Mephistopheles. But now, looking back, Nixon had, in foreign policy terms, a far surer hand and a far greater strategic understanding of the world than, than what we've got now. Would you, is there anything in that? Yeah, I mean, Biden is a pretty empty vessel. Uh, and there's not much there. Uh, I mean, they can trot him out and he can read the teleprompter. Uh, but in terms of actually having any real substance, uh, yeah, I mean, Nixon was a very complex individual. I mean, at the time of Watergate, it also came out that uh, the administration was secretly training, I think, 10 or 15,000 Thai mercenaries to go into Laos. And then you had the secret bombing of Cambodia. I mean, so there was a very dark side to Nixon, both domestically and uh, internationally. But there was also a depth. And the other thing, which Ralph Nader also points out, is that the last pieces of progressive legislation, the Mine and Safety Act, the Clean Water Act, OSHA, all got passed under Nixon, not because Nixon was a friend of the environment, or, but because we had movements. And, and Nixon was very frightened of movements, uh, as every politician should be. And part of our problem now is that our movements have been virtually eradicated, including our labor unions. Bravo. Brilliantly put. Thank you very much, as always, Chris Hedges, for joining us on the Great, mother thanks, of all talk shows. Now, I've got a long list of places that you can watch as well as listen. Of course, listeners are just as valuable to us as viewers. We're not vain or anything. We like to think that as many people are listening as are watching. But if you are watching, here's where you can do it. Moats TV Twitter, Moats TV Facebook, Twitch on RT International's YouTube and RT International's Facebook, on RT UK's YouTube and RT UK's Facebook, on RT UK's Twitter. And on George Galloway Facebook, George Galloway YouTube, George Galloway Twitter, 
and on FM in the Washington DC area of the United States, 105.5 FM there. And right across the United States on AM out of Maryland. And the monologue is streamed as usual on Instagram. And thousands, of course, are listening on our good friends, sputniknews.com. Download their app. Why don't you join the growing number of people studying at the Open University of the Airways? Now, this next story is, belongs in the drawer marked unbelievable. In fact, if I didn't know it was true, the facts as presented to me would not have been believed by me. Stephen Donziger is an American attorney known for his legal battles with the Chevron oil company. But he wasn't doing that for himself. He had 30,000 clients, but they were poor farmers and indigenous people in Ecuador, and therefore worth less in the eyes of some jurisdictions and most big multinational oil companies. The case related to environmental damage and health effects caused by oil drilling in Ecuador by Chevron. And the dispute centers on a decision in 2011 by the Ecuador courts, which ordered the company to pay $9.5 billion in damages to people blighted by decades of polluted air and water. Chevron just never paid up. They claimed that there was a shocking level of misconduct and fraud by the lawyer and by the Ecuadorian judges. Chevron, not content with not paying the fine, then took their lawyer to court in the United States. And when he refused to hand over his professional equipment, his laptop and all that, he was put under house arrest in the United States in 2019, and he has not left his apartment since. Now, this extraordinary story has begun to get huge traction in the United States. Uh, Susan Sarandon and other uh, famous and, uh, and progressive people have rallied to Stephen Donziger's uh, cause, and I suppose you'd have to be of a certain cast of mind to believe that an American lawyer should be under house arrest in America because he represented 30,000 poor farmers and indigenous people in Ecuador and won. Does that sound like justice to you? Well, it doesn't to me, and that's why our next guest is Stephen Donziger, who joins me now after this short video. Stephen, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll come and talk to you in a minute, but I think we should let the audience uh, see this short video first, with your permission. Bear with me, please. 
30 Nobel laureates have joined global human rights and environmental NGOs calling for an end to the home detention of human rights lawyer Stephen Donziger. Donziger played a key role in winning the landmark $9.5 billion judgment in Ecuador against Chevron for its deliberate pollution of the Amazon rainforest while operating as Texaco from 1964 to 1992. He has become Chevron's target in the company's stated campaign to, quote, demonize Donziger, unquote. In 2011, Chevron was found liable and ordered to pay $9.5 billion for deliberately polluting the Amazon by dumping 16 billion gallons of toxic waste into the rainforest, causing a massive health crisis. Instead of paying the judgment, Chevron withdrew its assets and fled the country. 916 toxic waste pits remain, poisoning the local drinking water to this day. Chevron should focus on a complete cleanup. Instead, with support from a U.S. federal judge, Chevron is attempting to silence Donziger and those who support him. Framed by Chevron with false evidence and testimony from a bribed witness, the judge has ordered Donziger to turn over his email passwords, phone, and computer to the court to give to Chevron. When Donziger appealed the order, the judge charged him with criminal contempt, seized his passport, and placed him in home detention. Donziger has been convicted of no crime, yet remains under house arrest for over eight months, unable to pursue justice for the Ecuadorians poisoned by Chevron. Corporate power coupled with judicial abuse has run roughshod over the rights of a human rights lawyer pursuing justice in the largest case of oil-related environmental destruction in history. Chevron's attacks on Donziger must be stopped. The U.S. government must free Donziger today and investigate the ongoing violations and abuses by Chevron and its lawyers. Join Nobel laureates Greenpeace USA, Global Witness, Amazon Watch, Rainforest Action Network, and other activists call for the immediate release of human rights lawyer Stephen Donziger. Stand up to big oil. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist 
specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Stephen, I'm almost lost for words, I've got to tell you. Uh, my wife interviewed you before for our uh, Sputnik program, but that's the first time I've seen that video. Um, my first uh, question really has to be this. Why didn't Chevron quit while they were ahead? They got fined $9.6 billion and didn't pay it. You would have thought they would have wanted to leave it at that. Why have they come after the lawyer who represented their victims whom they have not compensated? Well, good to be on your show, George. Um, first, I want to mention that was a video presented at Chevron shareholder meeting one year ago this next week. So I'm still in house arrest one year later. It was eight months when that video was made by Alec Baldwin. It's now 20 months on a misdemeanor charge, which in the United States is a petty crime charge that has a maximum sentence if convicted of six months in prison. And I've already been 20 months in my home prison. Um, to answer your question, uh, they still face financial risk. They didn't pay the fine, but the reality is the affected communities in Ecuador have an international legal team, other than me, who are exploring ways to seize Chevron's assets, oil assets and refineries and the like, to force compliance with the rule of law and make them pay the judgment. Chevron has calculated that if it can attack me or use the U.S. judicial system in this very abusive way to lock me up, the chances... <clears throat> excuse me, of the judgment being enforced go down significantly. It's a calculation Chevron has made to risk, you know, manipulating the system to get a financial return. In the meantime, you know, I've been deprived of my liberty. A critical fact, George, is I'm not being prosecuted by the U.S. government. I'm being prosecuted by a private law firm that has Chevron as a client. The U.S. government rejected this case. They refused to prosecute me. So the judge, Judge Kaplan, who allowed the company to put in paid witness testimony and false evidence against me, is also the one locking me up. And he's doing it by a private law firm that he appointed to press these charges after they were rejected by the regular U.S. federal prosecutor. Well, I knew that standards had slipped in the United States in recent years, but I hadn't realized they had slipped so far. So the U.S. government refused to prosecute you, but under a private prosecution, you can be imprisoned in your house for 20 months and not presumably, therefore, able to earn your living. Well, I, I haven't earned a living for two years. Um, they're trying to get me to quit the case. Um, they're trying to punish me and weaponize my situation to... I think, intimidate other human rights lawyers and environmental justice defenders. You know, we're in a critical moment in the world now with the planet under threat. Global warming poses an existential threat to our children, our grandchildren, our world. 
And, you know, if the frontline lawyers like me cannot continue to do this important work to hold these major polluters accountable, we're not going to be able to save the planet. and We're all going to be really screwed. And, you know, what's happening here is Chevron doesn't like lawyers who do this work, especially those that, like myself who are successful at it and who know what they're doing. So they're trying to use me and weaponize me to intimidate others so they don't get into this field and they don't do this work. And the fossil fuel industry will continue to make, you know, its profits, even though it profits from activities that harm us all. So that's, to me, the big picture. I mean, these are extreme measures for extreme times. It's an outrage that the United States federal judiciary is letting this happen. I'm, I'm basically, this is a corporate prosecution. It is not a normal prosecution. No one in the United States ever has seen a corporate prosecution before this one, before the one Chevron is in control of and targeting me. So, you know, there's been a lot of consolidation of corporate control in the United States and government and, the, you know, Congress and the executive branch. I, I, I'm shocked at, that they're now trying essentially to take control of part of the normally independent judicial branch. And they have obviously succeeded in my case, even though ultimately I, I expect to be able to get through this. Well, yeah. Uh, what about the reputational damage, not just to Chevron, but to the uh, whole idea of justice? Uh, you, you mentioned Alec Baldwin, uh, Susan Sarandon, many uh, important cultural figures uh, have come to your side. What about political figures? Uh, is anyone in Congress raising the, this apparent outrage? Well, um, there have been six Congress persons who have written a letter to the U.S. Department of Justice asking for them to take the, corp the private corporation prosecution back. So they prosecute me directly. And if they were to do that, they'd probably dismiss the case because they declined to prosecute me to begin with. Um, but we need more support. I mean, we need more public figures. We have 68 Nobel laureates who demanded my release, literally thousands of lawyers. But, you know, U.S. elected officials, have, we need more support. They need to really act to prevent this embarrassment. I mean, this, this isn't just harming me and harming the indigenous peoples of Ecuador who are literally dying at the hands of Chevron's pollution. I think it's an embarrassment for the, for the United States government overall. Yeah, I do. I lawyer locked up in the United States. It's exactly. Crazy. I, 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 I think the... Uh, this, the same. Uh, there's something of the Julian Assange about this. As I'm talking to you, uh, I'm, I'm feeling that. Uh, that a truth teller, a whistleblower, in your case, a lawyer. I mean, uh, does legal privilege have no meaning anymore? Where a man can be prosecuted for winning a legal case? Well, look, you know, Corporate, lit corporate litigants and well-heeled litigants respect each other's privileges. There's been a, you know, when it comes to a human rights lawyer and you want a, you know, $10 billion judgment against a big American oil company, they're throwing rules out left and right to try to stop me from working. You know, for example, I'm the only person in America locked up on a misdemeanor charge, any charge. I mean, there's thousands of cases. Why am I the only one locked up? 
you know, no one else is locked up for even one day. The longest sentence ever given for someone convicted of what I'm accused of is 90 days of home confinement. And I've been home now for 656 days, you know, more than, I don't know, eight times the 90 days. It is a corporate prosecution designed by Chevron to punish me, to get me to quit the case and to, as I said, intimidate others into staying away from this kind of human rights and environmental justice work. It's a it's an utter embarrassment for our country. And by the way, it's a litmus test for President Biden. You know, he's purporting to deal with the climate issue and he cannot let uh, lawyers be locked up for taking on the big fossil fuel polluters and call himself a climate president. So, you know, we've asked his attorney general, Merrick Garland, again, to take the case back from the private Chevron law firm and prosecute me directly, at which point I suspect he will dismiss the case. I may be naive, but is there any media interest in this in the United States? You would think this was a, a case uh, par exemple for uh, the liberal uh, news uh, channels and the liberal newspapers and so on. It's got everything. Ecuador, big oil, a lawyer being locked up. Uh, you'd think that this would be a cause celebra, is it? To an extent, the independent media have covered it pretty extensively, and people are outraged. The big corporate media, like, for example, the New York Times or the big networks like CNN haven't come near it. Um, I, mean, I, I was being naive then. It's a pretty interesting story when a, a Harvard law grad, I was classmates of President Obama. You know, I'm a successful human rights lawyer is locked up without a jury, without a trial for almost two years. That is a really fascinating story. Kafka-esque, yeah. It's Kafka-esque. I've had reporters fly thousands of miles from Europe to interview me in my apartment. And the New York Times office is a 30-minute walk from where I live, and they haven't bothered to drop by yet. Wow. Uh, might I ask if uh, President Obama knows of the case? He does know of the case. Has he done anything? He helped in the early part of the case on an issue when he was a senator, but no, he has not done anything. I mean, I don't know if it's appropriate for him to do anything. I mean, I, obviously I want his support and the support, <clears throat> the support of everyone, but I don't know. We, we need support. We're getting support. We well, need if he would support. say something, it would be, that would be, uh, that would powerful. be very helpful. Yeah. That'll be helpful. So George, what happens, what happens next, so, Stephen? Well, you know, I had a, a non-jury trial last week. It was a farce. I mean, she wouldn't let me defend myself. Wouldn't let me, testify in my defense and she's gonna you know this judge who's a member of the chevron funded federalist society she's not assigned to the case randomly is going to find me guilty and try to sentence me to prison and that will play out over the next several weeks here in new york see i don't even understand how a private court can send someone to prison uh, I mean, surely the the state has a monopoly on who goes to prison well, apparently not in the United States. Wow. This is truly, <laughs> deeply 
madly unbelievable. And I can tell you, this is a first of its kind type of corporate prosecution. And, you know, everyone who cares about justice and the rule of law needs to make sure it never happens again. And by the way, if you want to help, please go to our website. It's called freedonziger.org. All one word, free, D-O-N-Z-I-G-E-R. And you can donate to our legal defense fund and sign up for our campaign and we'll get you emails about what's going on. You can also follow me on Twitter at S Donziger, where I post a lot of uh, materials about case updates on Twitter. Fantastic. Stephen, uh, truly madly unbelievable. Uh, and I, my wife told me that the story was like that, but because of the pressure of other things, I'm only now focusing on it. But I promise you, I'm well focused thank, on it now. Thank you, George. I appreciate it. I just want to mention real quick yeah. that I am current. I, I get to go out. It's not like I've just been sitting at home for two years. I get to go out for very limited things like school and educational things for my son, legal appointments. And I happen to be out of my home at the moment, which is probably why you're hearing some background noise. But generally, these are very limited forays that happen infrequently. And I have been under house arrest now for 656 days. And I just want to clarify that. Yeah, sure. No, I, I, I understand that. And I hope everyone will follow you on Twitter now and uh, the uh, contribute to your defense. I hope everyone will uh, start to talk about this extraordinary story. Yeah, it's freedonziger.org. Freedonziger.org. I'll be on it later this evening, I promise you, my friend. Thanks for joining us. Okay. On Thank the you, George. Good luck. Old talk Appreciate shows. it. It's been a pleasure talking to you about a deeply unpleasant uh, story. Um, uh, um, I was looking for the results of the poll. Can I do that? Yeah. Uh, who, what, who should Britain send to Eurovision 2022? I, I didn't write this, by the way. I, I, I have no idea even who one of those people is. Uh, who should Britain send to Eurovision? 30% say Adele. Surely she'd win it out of the park, unless it's political. Uh, B, James Corden, 16%. But somebody called Ozzy Osbourne is on 54%. Who, what is Ozzy Osbourne, is what I'm asking. Call me an old uh, fogey if you like. Now, one person who's definitely not an old fogey and who undoubtedly knows who Ozzy Osbourne is, is the rising star of American broadcasting. And if I've got anything to do with it, a rising star of American politics. She's my colleague, Rachel Blevins. And I'm glad to say she joins me uh, again. On the subject... Uh, Rachel, if I may, that I've just been talking with uh, the Right Honourable Norman Baker about uh, the Harry-Meghan thing. Uh, many people here in Britain think uh, that marrying an American and moving to California is injurious to your, uh, your mental health because Harry is appearing more and more strange every time we see him on TV. Uh, what's your take on that as an American broadcaster yourself. Well, George, I'd say that it may be hurting his mental health, but it's certainly helping the media over here. And I think that that's one of the things that 
has come out of this entire scandal, the story when we're talking about what the BBC did and what they covered up when it came to Princess Diana. And yet when you look like at people like Princess Diana and like Prince Harry, they are looking towards those people in the media, those interviews, those bombshell discussions that we talk about for weeks and weeks at a time. They're looking at those discussions and feeling like they can trust the person on the other end. But what we've learned from the BBC or even from the great Oprah Winfrey interview over here is that when it comes to the mainstream media, they're looking at these figures and they are seeing the dollar signs. They're seeing the ratings and what they can get out of it. And so I think when it comes to Prince Harry, it certainly seems like he is searching for something and at the same time trying to keep his new American wife happy. And it's just, it's heartbreaking to see how he's sort of going down that same path. We know how much his mother struggled. Now we're having to watch how much he is struggling and putting it all out in front of the public eye at a time when the media doesn't care. They don't care about whether it's a hard day. They don't care about whether he is struggling with anxiety and depression and it looks like his condition is getting worse. They care about the clicks that they're getting, how many people are going to be watching that interview. And I think that's what we have to come back to at the end of the day. And it is incredibly sad when it comes to these people, because even though they may be members of the royal family, they're still people. What about Bill Gates? He's uh, still people too. And uh, I suppose you would need to have the hardest of hearts not to feel sorry that uh, Bill and uh, Melinda uh, are no more, uh, even though they're sharing quite a large pot uh, of uh, alimony. Um, but it seems to me that things are rattling down for Bill Gates too. He's far from the, uh, the paragon of virtue uh, that he liked to imply before. Oh, absolutely. And it's funny because on one end of the spectrum, you have the royal family and you have celebrities where the media will tear them apart and talk about them to, the no, end, to no end. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have someone like Bill Gates, who is essentially untouchable. I mean, you look at the media coverage of him over the last year before this divorce announcement. And you would think that he was the greatest of all time. I mean, he was on all of these top networks, giving all of these interviews, acting like he was an infectious disease expert for the last year, talking about COVID, being seen as a great leader. And then all of a sudden we find out that he's getting a divorce. And then on top of that, we start hearing that there are a number of affairs that he had you know, agreements going into his marriage to see an ex-girlfriend of his. And then we're hearing more and more scandalous stories. And it brings us back to remembering that of all we know about Bill Gates, we also know that he was good friends with well-known child sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein. We know that Bill Gates went to see Epstein at his estate a number of times. And we also know that he flew on his private jet. And all of this happened not decades ago, but just eight years ago at a time when Epstein was already a registered sex offender and yet Bill Gates was spending time with him. So I think whenever it comes to him as a figure, there's a lot more that we don't know and hopefully a lot more that we'll continue to find out as it yeah, comes out. I wonder what first attracted him to the sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein. Perhaps, as you say, we'll find out. Um, lastly, uh, the, my perception is, I might be wrong, uh, that the last week has been very bad for uh, Netanyahu and Israel, at least in public relations terms, that more people opposed what they were doing than 
had ever opposed them before. More people uh, felt more sympathy for uh, the Palestinian cause uh, in the United States and in Britain and indeed around the world. Is that your reading? And if so, was that reflected in the media? I would say that it does seem like we're seeing more and more support for that cause, certainly more than we saw even back just in 2014. I mean, we're seeing rallies in major cities, people taking to the streets, people actually talking about the plight of the Palestinian people. And I think that's an excellent point you make, is that when you look at the media coverage, that simply is not reflective at all. Instead, we're seeing the media become even more hush-hush now that they hear about a ceasefire, now that they hear about terms where Israel says that they're going to stop bombing, at least for now. You know, the media kind of takes that and runs with it and decides to just stop talking about all of the Palestinian people who just lost their homes, who just lost their source of food and water and are still struggling. Well, they don't care as much about their plight. And I think that there was one thing that happened this week that was incredibly notable, which is that the New York Times allowed a full page ad in their newspaper, which called out supermodels Gigi and Bella Hadid, along with pop star Dua Lipa. It showed these three young women on this ad and it referred to them as anti-Semitic and said that they supported a second Holocaust all because they were speaking up about the plight of the Palestinian people. And I think that right there, the fact that the New York Times would allow something like that shows so much where they stand that they were willing to risk a libel lawsuit by allowing something to be printed that was so categorically false. And yet at the same time, there's a lot of coverage that they're missing there. So I think this is one of those stories that is only going to keep coming back around when the public keeps making it come back around and they keep speaking out about it. I saw that full-page ad, Rachel, and I, I th thought it was an incitement to violence. I thought that uh, the New York Times were placing these three young women in danger of a violent attack or worse. Uh, I was actually genuinely shocked by, by the New York Times publishing that. Is there any controversy about it? Have the young women uh, hit back? We've heard some responses. I know Dua Lipa responded to it and made it clear that that absolutely she did not say anything that was anti-Semitic, which was clear if you looked at the original statement she put out. But we also have to remember that for Gigi and Bella Hadid, they are part Palestinian. So this ad is claiming that they are not allowed to speak about their heritage, to say anything about the place where they're from, and that if they do, then it will be taken as anti-Semitic. And I think to your point, it almost makes a cause for violence and it sends out a message to any other person around their age group who may be popular in popular culture, whether it be around here in the US or anywhere else, that they can't speak out, that they can't say similar things and speak up for people who are being threatened with airstrikes by a super close US ally. I mean, to, to set that precedent is incredibly troubling, especially at a time when we should be cheering on these people who are actually paying attention to what is going on with US foreign policy and in other parts of the world. I mean, the fact that they wanna just shove them into a bubble and don't wanna hear what they have to say is just, it's crazy to me. Rachel, fantastic. I wish we had more time. Uh, we'll see you again next week, God willing. Uh, and we will uh, continue our look at American media and, of course, politics, which can't be separated uh, from it. The poll uh, is going well. 
uh, who, who should Britain send to the Eurovision? It looks like uh, Ozzy Osbourne is uh, getting, the, uh, getting the gig. Uh, now, there's a, a general knowledge quiz, but I, I no longer have it uh, because it's been, uh, it's been taken away. So, mercifully, I don't have to do that because right after this break, it is the fizzing irrepressible and somewhat mysterious Patrick Christie's. I promise you, you don't want to miss it. You know, and it's a very, thank you for, you know, I, I'm a big fan of your show, Gigi. Great, great debate, great. And I'm Scottish. I'm very passionate about what's happening there, you know. I had a great mom. She was Scottish, Mary McLeod. She taught me well. She taught me well at everything, including golf. I love Scotland and I love the Scottish food. It's great food. I said to Melania, you know, haggis. Look at that. What's more than more Scottish than that? Me. I am that haggis. She said, what, thin skinned and full of crap? But however you're consuming this show, you're doing so because you're going to get an alternative take to that which is served up to you. In the case of British viewers, on pain of imprisonment by the BBC. Now, I have been in a state of war with the BBC for some years now. That's probably why you've never seen me on it for some years now. No matter how germane the issue would be to having me on. Incidentally, in parenthesis, my old adversary, Jeremy Paxman, has been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, and I'm very sorry to hear that. I respected him and always looked forward to our verbal jousts. And I wish him uh, the best that is possible when stricken with that terrible disease. But the BBC has much more fundamental problems than that. It stands today on the brink of abolition. The Home Secretary, the Interior Secretary, whose purview includes broadcasting and therefore the BBC, has made it clear that the entire future of the BBC is now on the table. And I've been campaigning for that for some years. Usually when I'm campaigning for something, it does come to pass, though not always in the way that I would want it to. And that may be true also of the BBC. But the one thing all of us can agree on, the vast majority of us, is that the current BBC is not fit for purpose. First of all, it's far too large. Its budget far too great. It crowds out other media, other independent media, other independent production. It has monopoly status when it's funded, as I said, on pain of imprisonment by a compulsory poll tax. And that's simply unacceptable in 2021, when you can subscribe uh, through apps and all the rest of it to everything else that you consume. Why should I only watch Match of the Day? And this is my house on BBC. And why should you pay for that? Why should an old age pensioner in Burstall, in West Yorkshire, pay for me to watch match of the day. That's absurd. If I want to watch match of the day, all I've got to do is subscribe to it. 
And I don't watch anything else. Some of you watch nothing except the BBC. Others of you, and it's an ever-increasing number, are not watching the BBC at all. Why? How? In 2021, should we be forced to pay for it? But that was before this week. Before the lava began to pour from the volcano that has now erupted over a significant, historically significant, act of forgery which changed the course of British history and cost a young woman, a much beloved young woman, Princess Diana, Diana, Princess of Wales, the mother to the heir to the throne, the mother to those two sons, one of them now so troubled, is dead because of the BBC. That's what Andrew Neil, the former politics guru on the BBC, has concluded, and I see no reason to doubt him. The BBC is now dripping in blood, royal blood, because of the historic act of forgery by one of their most senior employees, their religious affairs editor. Imagine. <laughs> the religious affairs editor of the BBC was a forgerer who should be tonight behind bars. He forged documents and bank statements to trick Princess Diana into giving him an interview on Panorama, but they want it all to be on his head. That's why I'm not even mentioning his name. Because just like in the Watergate, it's not the original crime that is the biggest issue, it's the cover-up. And the people who covered up the religious affairs editor's forgery criminal act are sitting in the House of Lords. They're sitting still in senior positions in the BBC, being paid hundreds of thousands of pounds that you, if you're in Britain, are forced to pay for. Now, I've known the BBC to be liars practically all of my life, but this proves it. And they will not get off this hook. Not if I can help it, and not if the government has any sense, if they can help it. It's time to break up the BBC. It's time to jail the forgerers. It's time to sack the time servers who continue to pick up their bloated salaries at your expense. It's time for the lie machine that is the BBC, taxpayer-funded lie machine that is the BBC to be broken up. It's purview to be radically cut back. There's no case for this is my house being funded by the BBC. It's trivia. If you want to watch it, as me and my wife do, then you pay for it yourself. There is no case for a local BBC radio station 
from Land's End to John O'Groats. That's a matter for the private sector. There is no case for a taxpayer mandatorily funded festival of smut, festival of trivia, festival of come dance with me, of, of uh, Norton, of uh, all these sniggering, smutty television slatterns that you are forced to pay for. They should all be on independent television. I'm sure they'll do very well. Mr. Norton will continue to earn uh, his millions, uh, but it will only be paid by people who want to watch him. Not by my mother, who was sitting next to me in the sofa, although I wished the ground was swallowing me up, given the things that he was sniggering about. You feel me? The BBC is no longer fit for purpose, and it's time to go. Uh, Patrick, we've not got unlimited time. Yep. Let's plunge right into it. Seems to me, uh, perusing the front pages, which is all I've had time to do, yeah. it's the BBC and it's the Royals. Now, uh, I'm saying it's the end for the BBC. Where do you stand? Yeah, I think it's incredibly damaging. I think it's the sinister nature of what happened there. Martin Bashir had to go to extreme lengths to dupe Princess Diana into absolutely all of it. Now, I don't think there's a question that she would have done the interview anyway. I think she would have, but it's the tone of what she said and the damage and the fallout that happened after that. Now, if you compare this to the things that we've seen in the past with things like phone hacking and people going through people's bins, the, the bad days, or I suppose good days, depending on which way you look at it, of journalism. Uh, now, that was tend to be done by someone who was your kind of typical gutter press merchant, right? Martin Bashir was almost like the smiling, sharply suited face of the gutter press. And make no mistake, that's what the BBC now clearly is. What they did there was bang out Except order. at public expense. Uh, we paid uh, for the privilege. Uh, uh, at least your tabloid <laughs> reptile yeah. is being paid by a private company. Exactly, yeah. Whereas what Martin Bashir... I'm not forced to pay him. Yeah, and there's a lot of stuff coming out. Now, we will never know the truth behind this, but Earl Spencer came out today in some of the papers and said he even suspected Martin Bashir of planting a listening device in the room to help fuel Princess Diana's speculation. The lengths that this guy went to, and it is the damage that's been done after that as well. Well, it clearly will have soured the relationship between her and Charles, and to be fair, I think it was probably rocky anyway. Uh, and that knock-on effect that that had on William and Harry. And this is as bad as it gets to BBC. The next time that they lecture us and they go holier than now on anything, frankly, you have to look at it and go, you've had Bashir, you've had the helicopter over Cliff Richard's house, the Jimmy Savile stuff, which is as bad as it gets, right? And, and making old people pay for the privilege. Rolf Harris, Joe, oh, take your pick. Making old people pay for a bit of company in their own homes. I mean, this is, they're awful. If this was someone else doing it, we would rightly be saying, you know, boycott. And why want to know where Where's hope, not hate on this? Where's Hugh Grant when you need him? You know, where ah, is he silent, on this? Absolutely silent about media <laughs> abuse, but not when it's the BBC. Let, let's put, look, in, in practical terms, mm. if you as a journalist forged material yeah. to make me believe that my, my wife had been yeah. deceiving me, stealing from me, or whatever, you're responsible for whatever then happens between me and my wife. Yeah. Because it was all a lie. Yeah. And the, the, the forgeries were what fueled 
the flames which eventually consumed everybody. Now, I'm not a massive fan of Prince Harry, but I think what Prince William's statement, as meticulous as it was and quite classy of him, he stopped short of drawing a, a, a direct link between the Bashir interview and what happened under a bridge in Paris, right? Now, OK, Prince Harry didn't stop too short of that. No, neither did Andrew Neil, interestingly. Neither did Andrew Neil. And there's, there's that argument. Would that have happened? Would she have ended up under a bridge in Paris with a drunk driver at the wheel, essentially on her own, if it hadn't have been for the Bashir interview? And that is absolutely massive, right? And I think that's something that can't be underestimated. Martin Bashir, I felt, got it all wrong. That's something that's in today's papers. Again, Bashir bites back. He's come and said, look, actually, it had no bearing on what she said. That's rubbish, right? You know, that is absolute lunacy at all. And Why did he do it then? Well, exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah exactly if she was that. going to do the interview exactly. anyway, why, why did he, and, he and need to the forge the document? And the BBC went, well, we learned lessons from it. He didn't learn lessons from it. He had an inquest into it, an inquiry into 1996, and then he rehired him as, ironically, religion editor. For religion a man with, with no morals. Not just correspondent, <laughs> but editor, with yeah. presumably yeah. a team under him. Here's a call from Cynthia in Westminster on the subject. Cynthia, welcome. Oh, hiya. I, I'm just surprised that everyone thinks that the whole of the country has got, had selective amnesia. What about Andrew Morton's book? We all read everything she said at that interview. It was in the book three years prior to the actual interview. Um, I think it's just a reimagining history because we're getting ready for Charles to become king and his big blot is that infamous affair that he had with Camilla, his now wife. So, you know, I just think it's a bit of a reach to blame the only person of colour journalist that did something bad during that infamous and awful time where all of the royal family were getting ribbed by the media. Well, um, I, I, look, I, I cannot uh, exculpate him because of his colour. Yeah, but it just seems a bit strange that they're focusing on this one well, journalist. Not, but I'm not focusing on it. I'm focusing on Lord Hall, who not only hired him, but brought him back and gave him a promotion, and who is now sitting as a legislator in the House of Lords. He's not a person of colour. Uh, I'm focusing on the BBC as a whole, uh, which is not run by people uh, of colour. Uh, but uh, what do you say to Cynthia's point? Look, I do, first of all, I'm not going to say that I think Prince Charles was, was a fantastic husband. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is it's a question of accountability, and it's accountability at the taxpayer's expense, Cynthia, isn't it? You know, look, just because Princess Diana may or may not have said that anyway, the fact is that Martin Bashir massively sexed up a load of completely fraudulent documents that led to that interview, and therefore, I think, affected the tone of that interview that had some very real consequences. And, all right, she may or may not have said that stuff anyway, but he did lie, and he has to be held to account yeah. for that. But, I mean, I take umbrage with the fact that you've got this woman, she's dead, she spoke oh. her truth, as they say, oh. um, you know, she spoke that in a book that was written that would be, was a bestseller. Yeah, but it was I mean, much more powerful on television, wasn't yeah, it, Cynthia? Because you saw her lips moving yeah, and the words the coming is, out. We can't have this society where women's voices are erased, and I think that's what's happening. I mean, uh, you know, unfortunately her son used the phrase paranoid, which, you know, she was never diagnosed as that. I mean, anyone would be paranoid. Well, I, don't know, I don't know what... Uh, yeah, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. Uh, yeah, exactly, but, but I just but, think it's but a bit... You're not, bit... Uh, uh, you're not invalidating uh, William's uh, right to say that, are you? I think so. I think it's part of a script 
by the firm, which is let's forget about how awful we were to this 19-year-old woman that we coerced into the family. Let's forget about what we really are about, which is that having this culture where women aren't allowed to speak out against anything, that, you know, Catherine's brilliant because she's walks three steps behind her husband. That's not I've what never, we want I don't Britain. think she does walk three steps behind her husband. But I think, I think people think she's brilliant. Think... People think she's brilliant. No, I think the narrative... If they think that, and it's, it's not for that reason. I think the Why narrative... are you so against Catherine? No, I'm not against Catherine, but I think the narrative is in the royal family that women who have opinions, who have voices, are not allowed to speak. And any woman that enters that family, whether it's Fergie or Diana or now Meghan Markle, is trashed. You have all these male journalists well, uh, Fergie, trashing women uh, Fergie. because they've got an opinion. And yeah, I just think this is to do with Cynthia, this Fergie, in a grave. Fergie was trashed. <laughs> Cynthia, Fergie you know was trash. Nobody you know, needed to trash her. Well, you know what? Women allowed. Women should be allowed to have voices and should be able, be able to speak but, their truth. And Diana she, did that, and we shouldn't invalidate yeah, but, what she said in that interview. Doesn't just matter what they do. You, that one journalist got that story in a Fergie, dodgy way. I mean, they all get stories in a dodgy way. Right. Let's just be honest. All right. They're all at it. Cynthia, thanks for the call. Let's hear from Simon in London. How you doing, George? You okay? Yeah, good. Yeah, I, I really don't care about Diana, to be honest with you. What I care about is the fact that and the, the, the elephant in the room, that the BBC lied to us during yeah. the Iraq war and resulted yeah. in the death of millions. That alone is worth kicking them off the air and making them into a pay-per-view service, you know? And the band uh, television networks like Press TV for minor things, for things that I wouldn't even consider to be um, issues. And yet, they basically set a massive lie on TV, resulted in various deaths, resulted in the deaths of Dr. Kelly, which you're reporting on, of course. Um, I mean, more recently, if you really want to go into the celebrity side of things, what they did to Cliff Richard was unforgivable. I mean, they flew a helicopter over his house, uh, they collaborated with the police, um, he was completely innocent, he was found to be innocent, or certainly they didn't find anything uh, wrong with him or what he did. He was never arrested or charged, and yet they flew a helicopter over his house and, in essence, tried to make him look bad, and did make him look bad. And uh, it, was it was devastating. Well, if, you, if you read what they did to him, it was, it was heartbreaking. Oh, I, I followed it closely. Uh, Simon, thanks uh, for that. Patrick, yeah. that is the point, isn't it? It's not just this one damn thing. Oh, yeah. It's one damn thing after another. It's absolutely one damn thing. And we said that earlier on, didn't we? And it's the fact that even when they knew, and they unequivocally knew what had happened with relating relation to that Diana Chief, for 25 years, that interview was doing the rounds. They kept wheeling it out. They dined out on it. There was no attempt whatsoever to suppress it. In fact, it was actively promoted. And, and that's the real thing. And now, look, there's, it's wrong anyway what happened, but if there are certain establishments in the, in, in the media or certain outlets in the media maybe that did it, unfortunately, you might say, well, it's a bit par for the course. But the BBC, at our expense, holds itself up as a moral bastion of goodness and otherwise dark and bleak existence, right? And if you're doing stuff like this, as your caller rightly said there, the Cliff Richard issue as well, it's again, take your pick, frankly, with the BBC. Savile alone, you know. So that's, that's as bad as it gets. At least Murdoch, who came to own the news of the world, yeah. at least he closed it down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in disgrace. Yeah. But yeah. the BBC intends to sail on regardless. Yeah.
Uh, yes, exactly. And, 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 and they're very good at lecturing us. Now, I think this shows, again, how out of touch they are with the common person. They got it badly wrong over Brexit. They continue to get it wrong over Brexit. When you need someone on every single BBC show who's a monitor for unconscious bias, that's your problem, not mine, right? That implies that there's an institutional issue with there. What are you guarding against, right? And this is the problem with the BBC. Now, I don't think they understand the really sour taste in the public mouth that has been left, specifically now, over this Diana issue. And the way they've gone about... Uh, this whole report, you know, essentially trying to cover it up, rehiring the bloke, that speaks volumes to me. Now, I think the BBC was already on a knife edge anyway. We are now starting to question, I think, we're not blindly going along with the Beeb anymore. We're saying, what are we paying for? And what are we getting in a world of massive commercial choice? Yeah, fantastic to see you again. Thank we you. didn't get deeply into the papers, no. but I think <laughs> we covered uh, the main uh, issues. So thanks very much. Thank Look forward to doing that again with you. Uh, next week. Uh, you've been a marvellous audience. I hope you've enjoyed listening as much as I have enjoyed presenting. Uh, we have uh, toured the horizon uh, from the great issues of war and peace. God bless all of you who've watched and listened. If you enjoyed it, come back next week at the same time, in the same place. Why don't you? It's the mother of all talks. 